You are listening to the episode four of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I'm Francine Belay, your host, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Are you at a point in life where you are looking to create more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money, and lead a movement to change the world? Let's have a chat. Go to www.francinebelay.com slash podcast. That's www.francinebelay.com slash podcast and click on request a call button for more information. My guest of this episode is Tanya Tarr. She is the vice president at Advantage Spring, Forbes contributor and negotiation strategist. A former politician turned negotiation coach and entrepreneur, Tanya has interviewed hundreds of women executives from different representations in power writing for Forbes. In our conversation, Tanya explains her journey to become a master negotiator, how her multiracial background shaped her vision of the world, the key principles she's learned from her personal heroes, and why solving problems for people is her personal mission. She also shares practical tips and ideas we can use to improve our negotiation skills. We also talked about why she decided to leave the non-for-profit world, having spent years promoting other people's causes to transition into the business world. Tanya believes that multicultural negotiation is an opportunity to build understanding, relationship, and peace. She hopes to be able to help thousands, millions of people learn how to negotiate because it will help them become micro peace builders. Now let's dive in. Hi, Tanya. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Francine. Uh, good. So most people, you know, are leaving big corporate today to find their passion and do meaningful work. But I see that you are also working for a corporation and doing meaningful work. Tell me, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, so I actually went in the opposite direction. I spent uh, almost 20 years working in uh, democratic politics in the United States. Um, half that time was on the national level, and then uh, part of that time was uh, in Texas, where I live. I think that whether it's corporate or nonprofit or political or entrepreneurship, or wherever it goes, wherever you might find yourself working, the real question is, what is answering for yourself? What is my purpose? Right. And that can be frankly, a very difficult conversation to have with yourself. Uh, I have found it's easier to ask myself the question of, you know, what is the problem that I want to solve in the world? Right. Yeah. And regardless of where I find myself, that is my guiding star. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think also I want to caution people around this idea of following your passion. I think that it's important to have motivation and drive in what you're doing. But, um, you know, with all of my winding non-traditional career 
paths that I've taken, they have started as a passion, as a side hustle, as a volunteer activity that then sort of grew and took over my life. And then I had to follow that and I found ways to be paid to do that. The issue is that when that's how you live your life, it's all consuming, right? And they're trade-offs. Like, you know, that for a long time, there was a certain way that I lived basically like a student, right? Because politics doesn't actually pay very well. Um, You know, eventually I found myself um, in places that were more kind of uh, stable in terms of employment. And I also had a very unique skill set that was very much in demand so I could command more in terms of pay. But, um, but yeah, just, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm launching into lecture mode here, Francine, really quickly, but, yeah, um, I, you know, passion is good and it's important, but, um, you know, it needs to be tempered by other things, right? It needs to be tempered by your ability to support yourself and your family. Um, and also the fact that like that it's, it's all or nothing. You have to be comfortable being an all or nothing kind of person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about money in um, uh, in, a, in a moment. Um, so just before, oh, you, I also know that you are a Forbes contributor. Um, so how did you become one of a Forbes contributor? Yeah, so Forbes recruited me to write for them for a new vertical they were starting called Women at Forbes a couple of years ago. And they found me because I, um, I'm a negotiation nerd. And I uh, happened to be very fortunate to study under Dr. Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon, where I went to undergraduate and graduate school. She wrote the book, Women Don't Ask, and did some of the first research on the intersection of gender and business negotiations. I love that book. Falling behind. Yeah, she's fantastic. Incredible, incredible academic and an incredibly generous person. Um, So she taught me collaborative negotiation skills right as I was, you know, in my early 20s. And previous to that, I had done a lot of campus organizing, um, and it just was a part of who I was to be resourceful with whatever I had available in front of me to do things that were, frankly, kind of extraordinary. I mean, organizing student events and finding sponsors for things and things of this nature, like this was a constant negotiation. I had no idea I had a natural affinity for. I think I also should mention that, you know, I'm I'm multiracial um, and the child of immigrants, and I have also noticed that um, culturally, I've had to negotiate things from a very early age, just mm-hmm. sort of naturally. And so that shapes my experience. But I took her class and, you know, it was the last year of graduate school. And I remember being done with it. And she helped me actually negotiate my first big job interview with a major uh, consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I followed her direction and got everything that I wanted. <laughs> But I remember coming out of that class and being like, why didn't I take that my first year of college? Uh, You know, I'm fascinated by negotiation as a technique and as a way of life, because if you're a good negotiator, you really understand yourself. And I felt like coming out of that class, I had such a much more clear picture of who I was as a person and what was important to me. That's great. So how can you tell us how we can become good in asking for what we want in life? As a negotiator, a top negotiator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it goes back to, it goes back to understanding what your goals are, really. And doing that without regard to everything around you, right? So negotiators that aren't 
as skillful, aren't as successful. They tend to be reactionary. And so they're sort of, you know, responding to what is being given to them or presented to them. Yeah. I just, uh, as I was telling you before we started the call, I just finished writing up a interview that I got to do with one of my personal heroes. I got to interview one of my personal heroes, Kendra Scott, who is a fashion jewelry and uh, home decor. Uh, I mean, she herself is a mogul and she's created this billion dollar valued at a billion dollars. Her company is, um, you know, uh, with, with, uh, she has, I think 75 stores across the United States and she's actually sold at Selfridges in, in London. Mm. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but she started, Mm -hmm. she started in 2002 with $500 in her bank account here in Austin, Texas. And she grew that business, you know, over time. And she says this really brilliant thing that I put in the article, which is, um, you know, you have to know your destination. Wow. If you don't know your destination, you're not going to be able to get there and build that roadmap. Mm. So I think that that's really important. Mm. And I think the other, I'm going to quote her again. The other thing that she Mm. talked about that was so important um, to her in building her business was um, understanding that she had to own the conversation with her customers. Mm. Um, And I think sort of the other piece of that, that she may not have said in, in words is she had a really clear vision where she wanted to go and what she wanted to do and that she wanted to help women. Mm. Uh, And I've interviewed, I've had the opportunity to interview hundreds of women executives over, uh, you know, the course of two years where I've written for Forbes and um, you know, it's just been so interesting seeing all the different representations of women in power and particularly self-made women. Yeah. Um, And I think uh, so Denise Morrison was formerly the CEO of Campbell soup Um, And she, one of her pieces of advice that I thought was so useful was being really prepared Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to control the volley of that conversation, right? And being able to anticipate what might show up. That's a form of power. Um, And and still too, that's, you know, you need to know yourself what it is that you want your goal to be, what it is that you want to accomplish, but then also taking the steps you can to, uh, control for your react again, control for your reaction. Right. So if you have thought out all this, those different pieces of it, and you've collected the right intelligence and the right research that empowers you to be strategic rather than reactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, One of the things that you say, which is so, so, so important is, uh, as you're here or say, is to know your destination. Sometimes it's hugely difficult for people to understand or know that destination. How do you get there? How do you know? How do you get to know what your destination is? <laughs> is there any tips or any whatever? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think some of it has to do with your personality. Some of it has to do with your experiences. Some of it has to do with whatever is in front of you. Um, I think for myself, you know, I... Um, didn't have a very ideal childhood and, uh, you know, I'm a kid of immigrants and, you know, they did okay when we were first starting out, they didn't, we didn't have any money. And I knew very early on that if I was going to be successful, I had to get an education. And if I needed an education, I was going to have to provide for myself. So I think when I was like, actually like 10 or 11, I was very young. I was like, I need to get to college and I need to get on a full scholarship. and every other decision after that point was 
dri- driving me towards, you know, getting a full ride to Carnegie Mellon. And, um, and that really helped. And I think, you know, I, the other thing though, too, is like, sometimes you just have an experience and it, it will just completely capture you, um, and sort of leave no prisoners. Okay. So like in politics, we have this phrase, mm-hmm called the campaign bug like you get the bug right like a like a disease or like a a cold or something right because people get a fever sometimes when they're exposed to political campaigns in the united states i know it's completely different in the uk um we do follow from time to time (laughs) what's going on yeah yeah it's but it's it's bananas i mean it is direct democracy is very messy but it also is bananas and it's kind of it's a circus it's, it's exactly like show business. So in politics, um, and this goes back to how I ended up starting for Forbes. So in politics, there's really no set career path. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, it's completely like, uh, first of all, it's barely managed chaos. Right. But the second thing is that like you, the usual path into this kind of work is you volunteer for a candidate that you really feel passionate about. And then you, you show up so often that at some point they might actually hire you. Um, and then it kind of goes on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what happened for me. I was in college, Al Gore, this was 2000, Al Gore came to do a big event. And I just like really impressed his campaign staff because I had my stuff together and, you know, we managed a big event. There were like 15,000 people on campus. I got to introduce him, which was kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Actually, I saw a picture of it too, that my mom has in the basement um, many, many years ago that someone had, had, Taken. I didn't even think about it at the time. Of course, why would you think about this, right? Yeah. (laughs) But you look at that picture. First of all, I found out the guy running for Senate was incredibly angry that I, some little like you know, (laughs) pickety, gets to interview or gets to introduce the vice president. Um, But I looked at that stage, and I'm the only woman on that stage, and I also was the only. uh, I think I might have been the only person of color. Yeah. On that stage which is bananas, completely bananas. Like I had no, it just, it felt like something I had collided with a major like heavenly body or something. Mm -hmm. Like it just sort of happened, but you know, I, it it didn't just happen. I worked my butt off to make that event happen. Right. Um, but I, I got the bug. I was like, this is it. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to be a part of the circus. And they hired me after the event. And I went, I got on, I got on a plane, I think for the second time in my life first or second time in my life I got on a plane I'm in my 20s and uh you know Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh and they they sent me to Missouri to do an event and anyhow and that just kicked off 17 years of uh what I would like to say is a complete derailment of my life Mm -hmm. um and it was very much fueled by passion but uh yeah, you know, you have to get that bug to start with to know sometimes or, at, at least at least to 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 guide you toward what might look like your destination. So now let's talk about meaningful work and meaningful life. What mm-hmm. is your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? Yeah, for me, it's about solving problems for people. Um, it's it's about helping people call forth their inner wisdom, and it's about helping people feel sense of empowerment and connecting with their own self-agency to make decisions uh, in their life. Mm -hmm. And that actually was part of what fueled me about politics too. I think some, I had a couple of friends over the years, they're obviously not very good friends because they would say these like 
ridiculous things to me like oh you're just in politics because you're obsessed with power and I was like and I'm like running ragged and like doing all sorts of crazy stuff and I'm like just to get things done and I'm like this has nothing to do with my personal power like honestly like being a really good political staffer actually is about being kind of like a, a secret agent or a superhero. You're behind the scenes always making things happen, but nobody knows who you are. In fact, that's like not a part of the protocol that I was taught. Yeah. Um, I wanted to help people stand up for themselves and help defend or build or support their community. And I felt like politics at the local, state, and national level was, in the United States was a way to do that, was a vehicle for that. Um, and then over time, in the, particularly towards the end of my career in politics, uh, I spent a lot of time with new leaders. So these were union leaders. These were people that were public school employees, usually teachers, sometimes janitors or school bus drivers, who got elected as their, their president for their local chapter. So helping them understand how to deal with the local media and how to influence you know, a legislator who had control over budgets that were going to mean the success or failure of a school district. Mm you know, helping them call forth within them their own leadership, right? And these are people that have never been in positions of leadership before, right? But helping them understand, you know, how to navigate that process, how to negotiate with the press, how to negotiate with legislators. That was all yeah. something I found fascinating. And being able to come alongside people in that developmental process was mm -hmm. rewarding for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, now it's now I'm doing it more in, in the corporate space because I I feel like that's right now where I can do the greatest good. Yeah, yeah, okay. So tell me, when did you realize um, who you are and what you are meant to do in life? <laughs> if th there is such a thing that a very happens. broad question. <laughs> who I am, I think understanding who you are is a constantly evolving yeah. uh, state, right? Um, so I will say too, that, you, you know, you're talking to me at a time where I'm at, uh, a pretty dramatic transition and pivot in my mm -hmm. career and in my identity. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I've, I've had to let go of a lot of things. In fact, I keep trying in some ways to get back into the non nonprofit space. Um, and I get these really clear signals that that's not where I'm supposed to be right now. Right. So like, I just got rejected from a major grant. That's the second time I've applied for it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not uh, going into nonprofit spaces as much as I used to, largely because I'm self-employed now, and I just don't have that capacity to do that anymore without being compensated. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that there's something very, there's something very strong. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually at a loss for words, which never, which rarely happens. I, there's something very efficient and validating about understanding how business works right yeah. but understanding like what is revenue generating mm -hmm. um and so i mean previously it's always been about raising money like fundraising mm -hmm. based on an idea for a candidate something like that um and i you know i've raised and spent tens hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. right um and i've spent millions of other people's dollars <laughs> um which is you know was an education, but it's different when you're trying to sell a product or a service that solves a problem for someone. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I'm still negotiating internally, yeah. you know, what does that mean? How does that change my identity and who I am? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's, 
I would say that it's taking, I'm a very kind of impatient person naturally. So it's taking longer than I was hoping it would. Mm. Uh, But then I've gotten feedback from other people and from mentors um, and very wise people that say, you know, you have to be patient with yourself as you're transitioning from one space to another, from one identity to another, from one one industry to another. Yeah. You know, I'm learning business development for the first time. And there are a lot of skills that I had from doing fundraising Mm -hmm. that are, helpful in informing that, but in informing that new type of work that I'm doing, but it's a, it's a whole, I mean, it's a whole new thing. I feel like, I feel like a little baby bird just Mm -hmm. hatched out of an egg Mm -hmm. trying to figure things out. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, it's deeply meaningful to me because honestly it doesn't actually, the difference isn't that there's not a difference for me I'm still helping people. Mm-hmm. Right. Organizations, whether it's corporate or nonprofit or wherever it might be, like or an association, it's still made out of out of people and people still need to understand themselves and how to negotiate with others. It's key to everyone's success. So it, it doesn't I feel like I'm still coming alongside other people in their developmental process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that isn't different. But, yeah. you know, no, the other pieces of it, how you talk, what you wear. <laughs> where you are yeah. things are very different yeah totally okay so tell me um what is one of your toughest moments is that some of the toughest moments that you've encountered in your life but which actually in hindsight was a blessing in disguise can you remember something <laughs> um i think i have to just go with uh some of the rejections that i've been yeah. getting recently uh-huh okay yeah uh, again, because it's like, I, I keep trying to go back to sort of other places I used to be in mm-hmm. and the rejections. Well, first of all, the more you get rejected, the less it hurts. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Actually, yeah. this is the first thing to know in the private sector or business sector. Yeah. You'll get right. so many rejections. So of course. Yeah. yeah. So you are getting used to it. <laughs> Yeah, it hurts less. But and I think too, and I've I've heard other people say this phrase quite a bit, like fail fast. Mm. Um, and I think that there's some serious wisdom to that. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh and um you know, I I think being yeah. Important. But I think the most, the most interesting thing I, I really have noticed in the last, I would say, so I've been, uh, I went independent, um, last August. Mm-hmm. So it's been a little bit more than a year. And, uh, I think developmentally like, yeah, getting rejections and it not hurting, like it really not hurting anymore. And just like, <laughs> it actually me looking at it as like saving time, mm-hmm. like, Oh, I got rejected. Great. I'm going to move on to my That's next it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I did this forever in politics, right? Like we did this forever in politics, whether I was asking people to volunteer their time or asking people to write a check, like, you know, I built up that kind of mm. mental muscle mm. where it was like, I could jump right now into the next yeah. one, but I hadn't had, I didn't have it here. And also too, I will say that it's, it's a little bit tangential to your question, but, uh, I think when you spend that long, when I spent that long, mm. I mean, it was all of my adult life mm. working for other people, working for a cause someone else's name on the door it was someone else's name on the mail um or on the tv ad and and now it's me it's my name on i mean i work for a vantage spring and uh you know i do various other things um 
even when you're a writer or a journalist, like you're still, it's sort of, it's not actually about me, right? It's about Forbes or it's about the subject. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a whole, it's just a whole other thing. Uh, and it's, it's been, frankly, it's been a little bit terrifying, but as I'm getting used to it and as I'm, you know, getting these rejections and I'm not internalizing it, I realize, okay, I'm building some muscle here, right? I'm building real confidence because I'm not kind of collapsing. I'm like, okay, what could I have done better? Or that, you know, that, that business partner wasn't meant for me or actually, you know what, they're not really aligned with what we're trying to do here. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think that's a big learning for me. Do you find it, of course, as you just said, and I think that this is a big distinction for myself as well, as I left corporate where you work with other people's name, other people's money and things like that, and then you transition to working for yourself, you find it harder to sell yourself than selling other people. Is it the same for you? Do you find it harder to sell yourself than you will have sold without even thinking somebody else's? Yeah, I, um, that's a good question. I get a lot of those types of questions too around like branding. Mm. Um, for me, I'm, I'm a data person. Okay. Like I'm a data and a science person and I, I really don't like anything that looks like it's ego driven. Um, and so that, that's been tough to sort of grapple with that, but I, I'm a huge fan of method and successful methods and solutions. So for me, it's not so much about selling myself as much as it is about promoting really good ideas. Mm -hmm. And when I keep it focused on, you know, here's how we're going to, and also too, here's another piece of it too. Even before we talk about selling yourself, right? I'm very new to business development. uh, And I'm starting to understand when it's appropriate to give stuff away for free, how to reframe that in your head. Cause it's not giving away stuff for free. If you're doing a product demo, it's not giving stuff away for free. If you're building a relationship with someone, right? You have to build your credibility. Mm-hmm. So when I hear the phrase, sell yourself, that makes me feel uncomfortable. When I hear that same spirit of that phrase reframed as how do I build credibility? How do I build rapport? How do I build relationship with this potential client or customer then I feel confident that I know how to move forward, right? Because it's not, it's not hinging on me. Mm. It's hinging on how I can listen deeply to what my customer or my client needs. Like what are their pain points? Mm-hmm. What are the things they're trying to solve? Listening really carefully for that. By the way, this is a very important negotiating tactic as well. Like active listening is so critical. Like if you listen very deeply to what they're saying and not only like what they're saying in terms of words, their body language, their tone, are they moving fast or slow? Um, all of those things, right, are, are information that help you understand how can I meet this person in the most optimal ma- optimal way to create the biggest win for both of us. I think that has been really hmm. critical um, because then you end up just selling yourself because you're credible, right? Because yeah. again, it's not about ego; it's about how do we solve this problem together. Hmm. Um, you know, and how do we create the best outcome for everyone, for me, for you, for, you know, the, the thing that is getting more popularity, I'm a huge fan of the B team too, or team. Oh man, I better not get their name wrong. Uh, Hala Thomas daughter is a CEO and it's funded by Richard Branson. Uh, B team, I think is what they're called. Mm -hmm. 
the B team. And it's a, Hala is organized. I also interviewed Hala for Forbes. Hala is uh, interview, um, cultivating a cohort of CEOs mm-hmm. for major corporations and commercial entities across the world. Um, and these are, these are business leaders who believe in sustainable business and sustainable conscious capitalism. And yeah. it's just a beautiful thing. Um, the idea, I mean, you know, obviously someone, myself being trained in collaborative negotiation technique, like I'm all about the win-win, mm. but what's even more exciting is when I see evidence of the triple win, mm-hmm. right? And the, and, uh, the B team and many other organizations, I think are starting to see this, right? In fact, the world economic forum just came up with a really long report. I think a few days ago, and it's about economic indicators mm-hmm. and how we need to rethink competition. Mm-hmm. And part of that is actually thinking about how we all think about long-term sustainability, even as we are evaluating short-term and longer-term economic success, right? Mm-hmm. Globally speaking, right? We're at a point now where we have to pay attention to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Looking back at your childhood, how has this prepared you to be who you are today? Uh, how has my childhood prepared? <laughs> uh, I think you hinted at that even when we started this conversation, being a daughter of immigrants, I think you started also negotiation very early on. Oh, oh, sure. I mean, look, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and all of my neighbors were from other countries. And I thought that this was normal, by the way. Um, <laughs> and now I live in Texas. And so I know it's definitely not normal. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, I think there are two things going on that are were. Well, there are a lot of things going on. The two things that helped me were having a multicultural experience. I mean, they, we spoke four different languages in our house, mm, okay. um, English, Korean, Portuguese and Spanish. And, um, yeah, my, my people are from all over, but, uh, (laughs) but then also I, you know, I had friends from all over. So I was constantly in, you know, an Indian home, Filipino home. Uh, there's actually a British family lived down the street from us, uh, a Nigerian home. So like, you know, (laughs) yeah, DC is, is a gigantic, wonderful international melting pot in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, that I think, I feel very grateful for that experience because it gave me such a curiosity about the world. I learned from a very early age how to think of myself as a cultural ambassador. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Koreans are very Asians in general. I think are pretty old school about stuff. So, like, it's always like you be extremely respectful of your elders. <laughs> um, but you, you know, being you know, being a guest in someone else's home especially when they come from another culture, like how do you, how do you operate with extreme diplomacy? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made me very open and curious to all the different cultures. I mean, we, the, the world is amazing. You know, I, I think I wish more Americans actually would uh, get a passport and, and travel abroad, but, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think that experience yeah. really opened up my eyes um, mm-hmm. and allowed me to be, a, a sort of natural negotiator. Although I like to say there's no natural negotiators. Like that's, it's a skill and a yeah. technique that you yeah. adopt over time, but, um, and that you hone over time. But, um, and the other thing too, I was, I was a Girl Scout. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent is in the UK. Uh, yeah. I think it's maybe scout, Scouts, right? Yeah. You guys have yeah. Girl Scouts. Right? Yeah, the Girl Scouts as well, yeah. And, you know, I, the, the experience with the Girl Scouts is first of all, understanding that there's massive strength um, in getting with your tribe and getting with um, 
and working with other women, that was mm -hmm. important for me mm -hmm. and has always been important for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Pardon me. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing too was we went camping a lot. And when you go camping, you have to figure stuff out. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something critical thinking skills mm -hmm. and being resourceful yep. uh, from a very early age. Mm. That is just something, a life skill that I've carried with myself. That's great. Mm. Okay, cool. So for uh, what would you say is your superpower? Ooh, dog. I should have looked at these questions before we got on the call. Uh, I, it's funny, too, Francine, you're asking me all the questions that I, I ask people when I interview them. I do. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Your, your questions. It's been, it's been a while, though, that, like to turn it back on myself. Yeah, and be like, I know. Right, well, I know. <laughs> what is your superpower? Um, okay, so I will say in the... I think originally, I think if if I didn't have a tiny Asian mother telling me that I need to be good at math and saying that it's only acceptable for me to be an engineer or possibly a lawyer, which is basically like I think a very common theme in most immigrant cultures, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I'm blanking on her name. There's a Nigerian British uh, comedian that I follow. Actually, she was here in Austin, actually. Oh. Um, and uh, gosh, I am blanking on her name. She's hysterical. <laughs> and I saw one of her videos on YouTube and, um, and it, was the, it was the same thing. She was like talking about her experience, her Nigerian experience, but I was like, this is exactly like the That's Korean true. experience. Like it's all this, yeah. like immigrant parents, I think they are very, they, they strive yeah. And they have great dreams for their children. And basically, yeah. we're all just a disappointment for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's, they didn't do that yeah. great sacrifice to get there for you to become right. an artist or somebody, you know? Exactly. Well, so this is exactly it. Money. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're going to... Your job <laughs> on this planet... Or, or something. <laughs> exactly. Your job on this planet as a child of an immigrant mother is <laughs> to be a source of bragging for her and to accumulate wealth so that she doesn't have to work in her old age, depending on how she defines the old age. Right. But, yeah. but she's responsible for all of that. But anyhow, uh, but exactly to your point about like, we, they didn't do all this so we could become an artist. And the thing is, I think I, I am an artist, a creative kind of creature. I did a lot of theater too. Um, and I think naturally that's where I probably was, but because I had this other experience, saying, yeah. nope, you've got to do this other thing. You've got to think, you know, because the creative space is nonlinear, I think of it, right? In terms of like cognitive and mindset, it's a very nonlinear space. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas things like, you know, science and rhetoric and writing and, you know, math and all these things, it's a way more linear process, mm -hmm. right? One to two to three and, and so forth. Yeah. And so I think what happened was I was this natural artist and I got shoved into this expectation you know, of being good at math and science because yeah. that's what was going to be most successful for me. Yep. Um, and so th there's always sort of this duality going on. And I think what happened over the years I've noticed is that I'm very good. I've been put in a lot of, and you know, like I said, political campaigns are the same way. Startup culture is the same way. It's just barely managed chaos. So if I have a superpower, it's that I can go into a situation and even if it looks like a mess, you let me talk to enough people and I can take that very messy, nonlinear situation and show you how it actually all zips up and is a linear situation, right? So I'm very good at taking barely managed chaos and turning it into a somewhat, you know, orderly 
linear process. Um, and so that that's kind of, I'm not going to lie, that's kind of fun. I've done it quite a few times, you know, I'll be in a meeting and we're working through a process. And then it, it's, I feel a little bit like a magician sometimes because of mostly from watching people's shocked expression when I help them understand, like, here's actually the process at work and here's actually how we make sense of everything. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think also my other superpower is that I'm really good at listening. I am very good at listening to other people um, and I'm good at holding space for them and helping them feel validated and helping them see what, uh, what their superpower is. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. I, I, I well, my hope is that I can teach other people to do that same thing. You know, I, the other reason why I'm so, so much a negotiation nerd is that yes, it helps in business. Yes. It helps you get paid more money or land contracts or whatever, but at its core, and this again goes back to you know our collective childhood, right? Most likely being in <laughs> yes, exactly. multicultural spaces. Yeah. Negotiation is always an opportunity to build understanding and relationship and peace. Yeah. So if I can teach more people, and my hope is that I will help thousands, if not millions, of people learn how to negotiate because it helps them become micro peace builders. Mm. And we need more of that in the world right now. <laughs> oh my gosh, we do, yeah. Now, Tanya. Tell, let's talk about money. Sometimes we want, you know, <laughs> we want let's to talk about money. Yeah, let's talk about money. <laughs> we want to do what we are passionate about, but we find that it doesn't pay well. How can we actually try to do both what we love and get paid for it? Yeah, I mean, the first thing, because I'm a practically minded individual, is you've got to figure out okay, what, do, what is it that I really want to do? Again, it goes back to the goal, right? So like, what's the goal? Is my goal to have a big house and, you know, maybe to um, get married or not get married, but, you know, have a family or maybe I have family that are dependent on me or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, you got to think about that stuff, right? Because then if you at least, and you got to hopefully think about it before it happens, right? <laughs> I mean, you got to be kind of mindful about this stuff. But um, I think also too, like I said, I, I really kind of want to put a little bit of a cautionary tone out here on this. Like when you do what you love, that's awesome. But when stuff turns into a job, like your source of employment, um, it may cease to be the thing that you love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. You because are so right. It yep. takes on a completely different yep. cast. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you have to, I think maybe a, another question you could ask as you're mm-hmm. contemplating this is, mm-hmm. is this, my passion project? Is this my hobby? Is this something that renews me? Or is this something that I want to devote my life to? Yeah. Because if it, once something you love gets connected up to a paycheck Mm -hmm. or your ability to pay your bills, uh, it's going to, the nature of it is going to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I don't do anything. Does that mean that we shouldn't do what we love then? <laughs> yeah, I think it means you have to be creative. Well, you have to be yeah. thoughtful, but you have to be creative about how you express what what you love, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I, some people, I mean, it it really, I think, more than anything, has to do with your own priorities and what motivates you, right? So there have been times in my life where I really, I am not built like this, by the way. This is not who I am. But there there have been many moments in my life where I've wished that I was more built <laughs> this way, where I could have a job and it just be the job. And then I do the passion project on the side and they don't, 
you know, one kind of facilitates the other. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm kind of a full strength kind of person. Like I'm not good at the sort of half steps to things, um, which is strange because I wish I was more of a, a even keel half step kind of person. I like to say that like, if you've ever eaten any like peppers, that I'm sort of like a, I have a habanero personality. Like I wish, <laughs> I wish I was more like a poblano. I mean, peppers are huge here in Southwest of you know the United States, but like poblanos are these very mild green peppers. They go with everything. They're lovely. Anyone can eat them, um, but they're very mild. And habaneros are sort of like this atomic melt your face off with heat kind of pepper. And, uh, I, I just, I often have felt like a habanero that wishes I was a poblano. I wish I was like more low key, but that's just not, not how I, I, um, how I'm built. And I think this actually ties back to your other question mm-hmm. about knowing yourself and how you define yourself. Like I, you know, I'm about to turn 40 mm-hmm. and it has taken me this long to own my habanero. Mm-hmm style of living, you know, that's just who I am. And it's, it's not going to change. Um, and so, so there's some executives that I've interviewed and, and, uh, CEOs that I've interviewed and they've been sort of a corporate career person. Right. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, they talk about their leadership in the corporation, but they often too have like a private life and it's a very different thing and they have hobbies and all of that stuff sustains their ability to be a leader in a corporation. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same conversation as it is with people who are entrepreneurs like Kendra Scott, who, you know, they launch something, it's their passion. And then that, that passion drives their success. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same in politics too. You've got to really want to win. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so those two things kind of come together and it's, it's more of a question of like, what are the Mm trade-offs that I make, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, to get to my end goal? Um, but I think, you know, again, like, before you even, it's, it's such a lovely question about, you know, how do you make your passion, your, your job and all this other stuff. But I think even before you get to that piece of it, you've got to do some self-work. You've got to do some reflection internally and say, what is important to me? And be yeah. really real with yourself. Like what is important to me in terms of living conditions? Mm. What's important to the other people in my life? Yep. Um, you know, because again, it's, it's just a series of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Very good insight. Now we are coming to the end of the conversation, which is a movement, building a movement. And I love this saying, saying, don't start a company, start a movement. Um, I'm not sure who says that, but what do you think about that in your endeavors? Would you say that you are starting a movement or, you know, instead, you know, starting a company? You know, since I came from political work and social justice, and I have helped build movements, um, I can say that I see the value in people thinking that way, because I think we happen to be fortunate. And I do think that more and more members of business and industry, wherever they are in the globe, are starting to understand that we're all connected, and that we have to be conscious of that. We have to be compassionate, um, as we move forward and we have to do things that enable long-term success and sustainability. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, do I want to build it? Like I said, do I want to build a movement around people learning and deepening their negotiation technique? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I see the value and I need, I see the need of people being able to understand themselves, being able to communicate with others, being able to de-escalate conflict, be able to, you know, create better collaboration, like that all is important. Um, 
turning it into a movement uh, can be challenging. And there are a lot of similarities between moving political opinion and building a political movement or a social movement and being a really great marketer and, you know, moving a lot of product. Mm. Um, Yeah. But I think... I think it, particularly again, since I just, you know, interviewed some incredible women, um, the women that I often walk away feeling so inspired by and people generally, I shouldn't just limit it to women, but I have a bias, Francine. I, I like women. Um, I like, I like women leaders, uh, male leaders are okay. Yeah. But, uh, but the ones that, that really recharge me heart and soul, mm-hmm. Uh, like Kendra Scott are these women who it just feels like there's this air of possibility around them. Mm-hmm. There is this massive, sunny, amazing, creative air of possibility around them and feel at ease in being yourself and being who you truly are. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That I think is powerful. And I think if you can create that, regardless of what you're doing, it's going to form a movement because people yep. want to be around that. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So if you have to relive your life again, knowing what you know now, what would you do and stop doing? <laughs> if, I re- if I had to relive the last 40 years. <laughs> yeah. What would you stop doing? <laughs> what would I stop doing? Yeah. Again, this is like one of my favorite. I, the way I ask this question when I interview people is like, what advice would you give your younger self? Yep, that's it. But I also know my younger self. So like I've had this conversation with many people and, and I just feel like knowing myself with my habanero kind of stubborn attitude, if I went back in a time machine and could talk to my younger self, my younger self would probably tell me to shut the hell up. Like, honestly, she's a very, she's a very headstrong young woman. Um if I if I could relive it and I I knew what I know yes. now, yeah. mm-hmm. I would tell myself, or I would own at a much earlier age. I would own trusting my gut. I would own trusting my instincts because I always had people making me second guess myself mm. um, for a variety of reasons, and I think. I've always had a very clear vision of why I'm on this planet. I'm on this planet to help other people. I'm on this planet to help other people feel good about themselves. And you can only really do that if you already feel a sense of confidence inside of yourself. Mm Yeah. Anything else is just a charade. And I mean, I I was very successful in helping a lot of people accomplish a lot of things. And I'm very proud of that. And we did some great work together. I just wish that at a much earlier age, um, cause I only feel like I'm only beginning to actually come into my true self and it's taken me 40 years. I am definitely, I feel like a late bloomer in a lot of ways. <laughs> Although I have also had some women, friends yeah. of mine who yeah. are in their sixties now. And they were like, you know what? Your life doesn't really start until you're 38 or 39. That's true. So, That's okay, true. good. I'm on, ta- I'm on yeah. track That's though. True. At least You're on track. You are even early. So you haven't uh, maybe party yet. So <laughs> that good. <laughs> but but trusting yourself really I mean trusting yourself and I I also you know I really wish that I had been strong enough Mm -hmm. I see it now with other Asian American and Latina so I'm half Brazilian and half Korean right and Mm -hmm. and I see in the United States I see women 
from those cultures, Latinx or Asian, I see more of them being brave about their choices yeah. um, earlier than I was. Uh, and I, I feel really inspired by them mm-hmm. um, because I think it's all a matter of figuring out how to make it work, right? It's not actually a preset thing. If you're going to be an artist and that's your passion, that doesn't mean that you're going to be, a, you know, poverty stricken. Mm-hmm. Right? There's so many ways to take that. Mm. So for instance, I really wish I was a little, I was very interested in design in college and I could never get into the design school. Mm. Uh, but you know, it was the, it was the nineties, man. If I had been good <laughs> at, at some of the like, uh, you know, Photoshop and stuff like that, I could have made a complete career out of that. Mm. I could have made a complete career out of design. I just didn't know it because I thought, oh, well, you yeah. can't make money doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yes. Do, would you say that the difference with the new generation now is that they see sense of possibility very quickly and they are able to act when perhaps in the past it was longer to try to figure out where the possibility might be? Um, maybe. I do think that the use and consumption of social media is speeding mm-hmm. things up. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, and sometimes that can be to detriment. Right. Because people kind of get fixated on on that. They get fixated on the interaction on online. But. um, Yeah, I don't I don't really know. That's I think I need to ponder that some more. Mm -hmm. I think I think people are just sort of. um, They're not willing to wait. Mm -hmm. And I I think I was trained to sort of, you know, be as patient as I possibly can and (laughs) and be risk averse. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think too, the other thing that's coming home to me, uh, and definitely for anyone that's listening who endeavors to be self-employed or be on an entrepreneur, like mm-hmm. it is difficult. And it's, it's almost like what I witnessed coming alongside people running for office. Everything gets stripped away. You get stripped down to the, your, your core of yourself and you have to ask yourself, is this worth it? Yeah. And I think what I've noticed even though I haven't been doing this very long, is that, uh, you know, if you, if you have an idea that you believe in, that can be your North Star. And it is a process of building that confidence and to getting, you know, getting more and more clear on how that idea you have solved problems for others can become profitable and make the world a better place, which hopefully is at least a part of what your goal is. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, you just, you have to um, trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. I think that is a good final word, trust yourself, that uh, we yeah. can leave people with, um, you know, trust yourself more. Uh, can you share some resources that our listeners should absolutely know about, you know, how to live meaningful work or, you know, uh, <laughs> meaningful work? <laughs> well, I would, uh, you, perhaps in your self-discovery process. Yes, I hope people will check out my writing on Forbes. Mm-hmm. So if you Google Forbes and then Tanya Tar, T-A-N-Y-A-T-A-R-R, mm-hmm. all of uh, my articles will show up. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a shameless plug, but also yeah, I interviewed but, but, really but, cool uh, people. Yeah, exactly. Those are like interviews that yeah. will inspire and, you know, enrich this conversation, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also uh, two books were really influential for me. I'm looking behind me because one is on my shelf over here, but uh, The Artist Way is a really oh, great yeah. book. Oh, yeah, yep. And uh, Morning Pages, I've been writing Morning Pages, so it's three pages longhand. Yep. Uh, Julia, Julia Cameron wrote that book. Yeah. And I've been writing uh, Morning Pages since 2013, five years. Wow. None and stop. so that is, 
it hasn't, well, sometimes it's every day and sometimes it's once a month, but like pretty, I mean, I've got like stacks of these spiral notebooks that I write them in that actually need to be recycled. But, uh, that was really helpful because that helped me focus my purpose and that helped me Mm -hmm. focus what is my meaning and what is, what is the thing I'm trying to do in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other one is a book called the creative habit by Twyla Tharp, who's an American choreographer. Okay. Uh, and that has been an enormous benefit to me, helping me understand um, just habits around being creative and how that fuels problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was really really helpful to me. Um, and then the other the other book I'll, I'll mention is a book called Power Questions, which I have right here uh, in front of me. And it's um, building relationships with winning new business and influencing others. And it's by Andrew Sobel and Gerald Panis. Yeah. Um, just Google power questions on Amazon. Um, very short book, great question. I mean, questions to me are one of my favorite negotiating tactics because it allows for an expansion and it allows you to get more information. And the more information you have, I truly believe the more information you have, um, the better able you are to build a solution that helps, you know, the most people. Um, but power questions was, it's a very short read. It's really well constructed. Um, and a lot of these questions really helped me get focused, especially as I started my own business, you know, particularly around stuff like, does the person I'm talking to own a decision? Yeah. Does the person I'm talking to have a line item? Mm-hmm. Do these folks, you know, are they ready to buy? And, you know, all, all that kind of stuff that you need when, yeah. when you're getting started. Super. That was awesome uh, resources. <laughs> How can people reach you and learn more about you? You mentioned about your Forbes uh, uh, article. Do you have a website or something? Yeah, you can just, if you just go to tanyatar.com, that'll okay. take you to all the rest of my stuff. I'm very active on Twitter. So I'm at nerdette because I'm a negotiation nerd. So N-E-R-D-E-T-T-E, that's me on okay. uh, on Twitter and just Tanya Tara on Instagram, but yeah, I'm around. I'm on LinkedIn too. Um, okay, so great. yeah, I'd love to connect with folks and Super. definitely send me any of your negotiation questions. I think some of the greatest articles I've gotten to write were from questions I got from readers. So mm, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Tanya, for sharing yeah. your wisdom. And uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you. Yes. Yeah, so wonderful to connect with you. <laughs> The show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelly.com slash podcast, that's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared by Tanya. Whilst you are there, leave a message in the comments section to let me know about your key takeaway from this episode. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and help me know that it is serving people out there. So remember, I am giving away a few digital packs of my book, personal branding in the digital age to celebrate the launch of this new podcast and help you kickstart your success in 2019. It includes the ebook, the audiobook, and the editable playbook to create your personal brand roadmap. To have the chance to win one of the digital packs, 
Go to where you are listening to this podcast, leave me a review and post that review on one of my social media channels, on Twitter, on Instagram, or on Facebook, whichever, and tell me that you have left a review for your chance to win one of those brand new digital packs of my book, Personal Branding in the Digital Age. So I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Until then, dream, act, and make an impact. Lots of love.